Uh, today's Bible reading comes from Genesis 38, it's the whole chapter, uh, verse 1 to 30, and the words should be on the screen behind me. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law, to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Sheila, grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adalamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down to the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face not realising that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you, to a, I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. After three months later, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again.
When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then this brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was named Zira. Good morning, everyone. Have you been... Uh... Enjoying a good week. It's nice to be able to open up the Bible to some awkward passages like this one. <laughs> it um, it feels you know when you're watching like a movie or like a movie series, you've seen it before and you watch it again. You, you skip all these different parts that you know are going to come up in the movie. Genesis chapter 38 feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? It's uh, it, it's some awkward scenes that kind of uh, pop up in this story. And um, I, I was as well preparing for this series that we've been doing on Genesis. I've been looking at a few other, um, you know, sermon series that other churches have done. And I was wondering why so many people skipped over Genesis chapter 38. And um, maybe, maybe there's a bit of a hint this morning. Um, but it's a really great chapter for us to spend some time in today. But it's really awkward, isn't it? It's actually quite awful and, and uncomfortable. And it makes us squirm in our seats a little bit, doesn't it? As, as we look at how Tamar is treated by Judah and his sons, and then how she uh, is forced to respond to the circumstances that she finds herself in. We can only really describe the family situation uh, as a mess, can't we? But then also, in in the back of our heads while we're reading Genesis chapter 38, we've got a bit of a cliffhanger that we were left with last week in Genesis 37, when Joseph was sold into slavery. And we kind of think, like, take us back to Joseph. We want to find out what's going on with him. Why stop to read a chapter like this one that doesn't have Joseph in it? Uh, But remember Genesis 37, verse 2, that we read last week. As we start the last 14 chapters of Genesis, we read, this is the account of the line of Jacob. See, the last 14 chapters of Genesis aren't just about Joseph, it's about Jacob's whole family. Now also, let's remember our big idea for this series that we looked at last week as well as we started it. Our big idea is this, God brings blessing through his chosen leader. And last week we looked at the rejection of that leader being Joseph. This week we're looking at the life of the brother whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place at Judah. And despite the awkwardness and the sudden change in scene away from Joseph, it is a great chapter to be able to spend some time in together. See, what this chapter contributes to our big idea of God bringing blessing through his chosen leader is this. God's plans aren't thrown off course by human failure. God's plans aren't thrown off course by human failure. People get thrown off course all the time. Actually, just this morning, you might see my glasses, there's a bit of tape holding them together. I actually face-planted into a door this morning and not quite sure how it happened, but I got very thrown off course this morning and broke my glasses. But also, um, people get thrown off by, of course, by people all the time and by human failure. You might remember me telling you about how directionally challenged I am and about the time it was a 40 degree day. I was in a car with my brother. I had a paper map for some reason. It was upside down. Uh, there was no air conditioning in the car and it took an hour to, to do like a five to ten minute drive to get to where we were going. I've never seen my brother more angry in my whole life. He's the most chilled out guy you'll ever meet. Uh, but he was quite angry because I'd thrown us off course completely in my, uh, my failing to be able to, well, point up from down. But God's plans, they're never thrown off course by human failure. 
even when that failure seems to work in completely the opposite direction to what God is intending to do. See, in Genesis, we see a part of God's plans in the form of the promises that he makes to Abraham and then to Abraham's descendants. In response to humanity's sin or or rejection of God and what God calls wickedness and evil in Genesis 6 that exists in people's hearts, in response to this, God chooses one family to work through to bring blessing in Genesis chapter 12. And as the story of the whole Bible unfolds, we find out that this blessing means God saving us. Saving us from his just and right judgment for the wickedness and evil that exists in every heart by turning to, uh, to trust in and follow God's chosen leader, Jesus. See, God chooses Abraham's family to do this through, and this blessing, we read, will come through Abraham's descendants. But this morning, what do we read in the, uh, the story of Judah and Tamar? Well, we see one of these descendants, Judah, who seems set on ignoring God and doing what he wants to do instead, and seems set on going the opposite direction to the promises of God. See, Judah, along with everyone in the story, is marked with the same sin that has been evident in every person so far in Genesis. But we need to remember as we read it, God's plans aren't thrown off course by human failure. If you've got a leaflet, you'll have an outline in that, and there should be three points. The first is Judah, Tamar, and the promises of God. The second is an uncomfortable truth. And the third should say radical change, amazing grace. So point one, Judah, Tamar, and the promises of God. Uh, In chapter 38, I think, you know, we, we could think multiple times that God's plans could be thrown off course because of human failure. If God has promised descendants to Abraham and blessing to the whole world through them, uh, surely Judah and his family are going to make it seriously hard for God to do this. It seems like God's plans are going to be thrown off course because of human failure, mostly in Judah's failure. We see it in three ways in this story, don't we? In his moral, his spiritual, and his family failure. Now we read uh, that after the events of Genesis chapter 37, in 38 verse 1, that at that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Ajalam named Hira. Now we're not exactly told why Judah leaves his father's household or leaves his brothers, but it's not hard to guess at, right? Judah's just pulled off the greatest deception of the century to his father in the chapter before this. Jacob, Judah's father, believes that Joseph, his favorite son, has died and has been torn to pieces by a ferocious animal. What really has happened, though, is that Judah, along with his brothers, has sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery and lied about it to their father, Judah being the one who thought up this plot. So it's not hard to imagine that maybe Judah's guilty conscience has led to him leaving his father and his brothers and heading off on his own and out into the big white world, heading away from God's chosen family. See, last chapter we saw Judah and his brothers reject God's chosen leader, Joseph. This morning we see Judah rejecting God and his promises entirely. We see his moral, his spiritual and his family failures on full display. See, first of all, it seems like Judah is becoming more a Canaanite than an Israelite, as Abraham's descendants are later called. He leaves his father's household and goes to take a wife from the Canaanites. He marries Shua's daughter, we are told. It's a pretty sudden marriage by Judah, 
And if you read back in Genesis, we'll read about how his father and his father's father had been instructed about how to act towards the Canaanites. It was pretty simple. It was one rule. It was don't marry into a Canaanite family. One rule. Yet here we read that Judah does exactly the opposite. Actually, he does what his uncle Esau does as well in Genesis. He marries into a Canaanite family. Now, at the start, you might have noticed... um, that his wife's name isn't actually mentioned. But it seems like the point of not sharing this information shows that Judah's marriage was one that's driven more by desire than anything and helps us see that Judah's really concerned with one thing, Judah. His only concern was satisfying his own desire and going his own way. And Judah is becoming more like the Canaanites. He's married into a Canaanite family. And as we read later in chapter 38, uh, Judah takes part in Canaanite religious rituals. He sleeps with a shrine prostitute, who we know is his daughter-in-law Tamar, and he doesn't find out till later. We see his interaction with her from verses 15 to 22. See, at uh, harvesting or shearing time, uh, people would offer sacrifices to Canaanite fertility gods in order to hopefully be rewarded with a good harvest as a result. And part of this worship meant sleeping with a shrine prostitute who helped to show your dedication to the fertility gods. Here for Judah, we see, well, what does he do? He uses it to satisfy his own lust. And he also uses it to bow down to the Baals. Judah has turned away from the people God has chosen to bless and is seeking further and further away from God. And we see also that Judah could care less about the offspring that God had promised to Abraham and to Judah's father. So we see this in the main problem that arises in this chapter. No more offspring are being born in Judah's line. We read in the first five verses that Judah leaves his father's family, marries a Canaanite, and then his wife has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And then in verses 6 to 11, we meet Tamar. Tamar, who is most likely also a Canaanite woman. Ur, Judah's firstborn son, marries Tamar. Now, we don't know what evil Ur did, but we know that he was wicked in God's sight and dies. And then, um, this seems pretty cold-hearted when you think about it. We aren't, we aren't told that Judah goes into mourning or anything like that for his firstborn son passing away. We're told that, verse 8, Judah says to Onan, his second son, sleep with your brother's wife, fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. And with our 21st century goggles on, we read a verse like this, and, and rightly we think, excuse me? And fair enough, because if this happened today in our Western culture, there would be an uproar, right? This was something called the Leverate Law. In ancient times, continuing the, first, the line of the firstborn son was a really important thing to do. It was a way of continuing the deceased son's family line through his wife and firstborn child. The brother of a deceased was called upon to marry his brother's widow and to produce an heir in his brother's name if there was none. So at the start of chapter 38, it seems as though maybe there will be offspring. Abraham's descendants might increase and the world might be blessed through them, through the line of Judah. But here, like father, like son, we read, Onan is very happy to use Tamar to satisfy his own desires by sleeping with her. But he's only looking out for number one as well. He doesn't want to produce an heir for his brother, we read in verse 9. And this is, this is the, the awkward verse to read, right? It's, um, it's an important one to understand, though, with what's going on. Onan is told by Judah to produce an heir for his deceased brother, and we read, But Onan knew that the child would not be his, 
<clears throat> so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. Onan doesn't want his older brother to have offspring. Why? Because if there was no offspring for Ur, who was the firstborn, then this meant that the privileges of the firstborn would fall on Onan's shoulders. Onan would inherit his brother's portion and have the honour of being the first in the family line. Onan wanted this to be the case. He doesn't care about any offspring. So he just uses Tamar to satisfy his own desire. And we read in verse 10, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Onan faces the same fate as his brother. Onan dies. The problem? There are no offspring to continue Judah's line. But then who gets the blame here that we read? Verse 11, we read that Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Judah lays the blame at Tamar's feet. And he ceases to care about acting toward his daughter-in-law the way that he should. Judah's moral, spiritual and family failures that we see here seem sure to throw God's plans off course. Judah thinks his sons have died somehow because of Tamar, so he just decides to ignore her. And this is where Judah expects the story to end for Tamar, isn't it? And this is where we start to think that the line of Judah is headed towards a sure end, especially when Judah's wife, just a verse later, passes away. But Tamar, at the end of verse 12, she has another idea. No longer does she act as this passive recipient of the failures and sins of Judah's family and of Judah himself. Tamar acts. It's not one of Abraham's descendants in this chapter who seems concerned with the promises of God and with continuing Abraham's family line. It's a Canaanite woman. More than that, it's someone who's been slighted, used and forgotten by Judah and his family. And she ends up being the one who cares about offspring. And so we read of her plot. She dresses up as a shrine prostitute who Judah sees, desires and pays. And in the payment that Tamar requests, we see her laying her trap. Okay, Judah offers her a goat to sleep with her. A really romantic gesture. Of course, it's not, it was the payment of the time, right? She asks for a pledge though in verse 17 to make sure that Judah delivers on his payment. And he replies, what pledge should I give you? She says, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant. See, what Tamar requests from Judah is the modern day equivalent to his driver's license, his passport and his credit card to be passed over to her. And Judah, in his great desire to sleep with her, happily passes them over. And Tamar becomes pregnant. Then we read verse 19, after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. And then in the verses following, the shrine prostitute who Judah was sure had been there is nowhere to be found. And she'd never actually been heard of by any of the people in the town. Now verse 23, we see Judah has quite a big ego. He doesn't want to be embarrassed. So he says to his friend who can't find her, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat. Good on you, Judah. But you didn't find her. But then, three months later, Tamar's trap is sprung. Verse 24, Judah finds out that she is pregnant, 
and condemns her to death. Now, the penalty for prostitution or, or adultery back then, um, not related to the shrine and um, Baal worship, was the death of both parties who were involved, meaning Tamar and whoever she slept with, Judah. But in verse 25, Tamar reveals that she is pregnant by none other than Judah himself. And verse 26, finally, finally, the penny drops for Judah. Seeing his belongings before him that Tamar sends ahead of her, Judah states, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. In other words, I forced her into this course of action because I refused to let her marry my son. Tamar, unlike me, has been concerned with producing offspring. And these are the extreme measures she has been forced to go to to make that happen. Tamar's in the right. Judah is the one who's done the wrong thing. And then we read that there's a birth of twins, Perez and Zerah, who we'll return to a bit later. But for now, what we're seeing is God's promise of descendants for Abraham continues to go forth despite the incredible mess of human failure in Judah and his family. And for us this morning, point two, as we consider this, we are firstly confronted with an uncomfortable truth. Now don't worry, point two and three are a lot shorter than, than point one. But point two, an uncomfortable truth. There are a couple of things that I think stand out about Judah that we need to take away with us today. Because it's pretty easy to point the finger at Judah and point out everything that he does wrong in this passage, and the same with his family as well. But if it stays, if that's where it stays, then we're actually doing exactly the same thing that Judah does all throughout this chapter. In this chapter, we see Judah's blindness to his own sin lead to pointing the finger at others, lead to falling further away from God, and lead to ignoring the harm that he's done to someone else in his sin. And if we just stand here pointing the finger at Judah, we miss the opportunity to look at ourselves. All through this chapter, we see Judah's double standards, don't we? Most obviously at the end, when Judah, believing that Tamar has committed adultery, seeks to burn her at the stake, completely ignoring his own sin. See, Judah is a man who wags the finger at the people around him, but doesn't look at himself. And we can reflect Judah's blindness to sin in our own lives, yet easily look at the sin in someone else's life and judge them. One of the questions that this passage raises for us this morning is, are we doing that? Well, Jesus has this to say in Luke 6 verse 41, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? See, reading this today actually helps us and points us to reflect on our own lives and help seek out the sin that exists there. We are called, like Judah eventually does, to recognize it for what it is. In Judah's life, we see his moral, spiritual, and family failures. When you look at those areas of your lives, what stands out? What makes you uncomfortable to think about? What sin do you see in someone else's life that you blatantly refuse to see as happening in your own life? Or even in the life of your family? Judah's been led away from God because he's refused to see it happening in his life. I think there's a call here to, to pray for humility, that God would help us to do this, that he would walk alongside us as we seek to turn away from sin. Judah's blindness to sin leads him to point the finger at others before dealing with his own sin. 
Let's not be a church that is characterized by finger-wagging without first seeing the sin in our lives and our need for God's grace. Secondly, his blindness to sin leads to him falling further away from God. Judah's drawn into the culture that exists around him and begins replicating how they live rather than living the way God desires him to. Is this a danger for you? We see Judah somehow justifying the way he acts toward God in rejection of him and rejection of his promises. And like Judah, we can justify the sin that exists in our lives without confronting it for what it is. Something so destructive and wicked that Jesus died on a cross to save us from it. As brothers and sisters, let's love each other by having the hard conversations about what might do this. Find a friend here to help you in your struggle against whatever sin you are currently justifying. It may well be sexual sin, as Judah and his sons exhibit. It may be pride. It may be bowing down to a God of money or relationship or even family. But don't let it lead you away from God or being with God's people. Ask for help. Turn to God with it and ask that he might help change your heart attitude in that area. Finally, don't let your blindness to sin lead you to ignoring the harm that you may have done to someone else as a result. I think this is a big one. If you think that this might be the case this morning, don't just ignore that. And please don't let it drive you away from being with your church family. But seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation. Especially, please don't let it drive you away from God or from church if you've been on the receiving end of that, as Tamar was, and as someone who has been badly hurt. If you're not sure how to deal with that, or to think through it, please ask for help. From Carl, from myself, from Lou, from anyone on the staff team, from a friend or someone you trust, or if need be, from a professional. As a church, we can't be blind to sin and how damaging it can be even in our own midst. And we can't be blind especially to the harm some may have faced as a result of the sin of someone else in their life. In this chapter, we see Judah's blindness to sin leading to pointing the finger at others, to falling further away from God and ignoring the harm that's been done to someone else. Yet in Judah's blindness and his moral, spiritual and family failures, we see something amazing, don't we? As we've said already, God's plans are not thrown off course. Instead, we see point three, radical change and amazing grace. Point three. As we read this chapter, I think almost all of us know where the story is headed, right? Joseph is in Egypt. His brothers are bowing down before him, just like Joseph's dream said they would, and they are reconciled. But we also see a radical change in Judah. Now, in the start of the story of Genesis, Judah hates his brother, he sells him into slavery, he deceives his father, leaves his father's household, starts following Canaanite ways, mistreats his daughter-in-law Tamar, rejects God, the list goes on. But by chapter 44, we see Judah offering himself over in the place of his younger brother Benjamin to become a slave because he wants to keep his word to his father who he loves. The Judah in Genesis 44 is unrecognizable next to the Judah of chapter 37 and 38. There is what can only be described as a radical change in Judah. 
someone once far away from God and God's people, but now brought close and reconciled. It's a radical change. Now, we don't know exactly when the change comes about, but I think it's safe to assume that it starts here in chapter 38 and Judah admitting she is more righteous than I, with Judah acknowledging his wrongdoing before Tamar and before God. It's an amazing transformation. And yet it doesn't stop there. There's a few verses we haven't looked at yet in Genesis 38. Let's read those now from verse 27. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it to his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. So here we have two brothers, who just like pretty much every other brother in Genesis is battling it out, even from the womb, to be first. Right, the cycle kind of continues here through Judah and Tamar's offspring. But as we read the Bible, the story of the Bible, we see something amazing. Let's jump forward, if you have a Bible, jump forward into Matthew chapter 1, where we read this genealogy. Now, I won't read the whole thing because it's huge, but let's read this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and it goes on all the way to King David. And if we keep reading this genealogy, where do we get to? Mathan the the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. It was called the Messiah. God's plans are not thrown off course by human failure. Despite Judah's rejection of God and his desire to live for number one, God worked through his actions to bring about offspring through Tamar, eventually leading to Jesus who was called the Messiah, the Saviour of the world. God's plan to save, never thrown off course by Judah's human failure or the failures of his descendants, or the failures of anyone else we see in the Bible. I was listening to a sermon earlier this week, and the preacher, William Taylor, said this. He said, God works with rotten, raw material. And this is the case with God's work through the line of Judah. And it should be a great comfort, because what this means is that God does not expect radical change on our part before we come to him. He doesn't expect radical change on our part before we come to him and before he deals with us. We come to him as broken, people who are sinful, as rotten, raw material, who God, in his grace, chooses to love anyway and chooses to work through as well, who he chooses to save when we turn to him with our sin and our brokenness and put our trust in Jesus as the one who can deal with that through his death on the cross. God doesn't expect radical change on our part before we come to him and before he, deal, he deals with us. He deals with rotten, raw material. And he brings about radical change through his amazing grace. We have reconciliation with our Father as we come to him broken and he makes us new. As we bow down before God's chosen leader through whom we have been blessed with forgiveness of sin and life. Through whom God's promises have been fulfilled. Nothing ever could throw God's plans to save off course. 
and our human failure cannot throw God's plans of saving us through his son, of course, if we turn to him. I think that's something to thank God for. I'm going to do that now. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who loves us. Thank you that our failings could never throw your plans off course to save. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin, for the life that we have in your Son's name. Thank you that as we read through the Bible, we can read how you have been at work throughout all of history to make this happen, Lord. Amen.